Good afternoon, great to see you here for EU's public meeting. For those of you who haven't met, my name is Rowan Kemp. I'm senior staff worker here with the EU. If you haven't met me before, I'd love to get to know you after the public meeting today so you can hang around for afternoon tea. You might want to come and talk to me about some of the things that come up in today's talk. That'd be great if we can have a chat then. Let me lead us in prayer as we meet together to hear God's word and reflect on it together. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for all the good things that you give us and we thank you right now particularly for your word here in the Christian scriptures. We pray that as we reflect upon it together today that as you promised you would lead us into the truth through your word, by your spirit, for the glory of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, last week saw the opening of the latest Tom Hanks blockbuster or I probably should say intended blockbuster because the reviews are now out. The Da Vinci Code. Well, apparently, now I haven't seen it myself, so I've read some reviews. Apparently, according to one review I read, the star Tom Hanks sports his worst on-screen haircut in Forrest Gump. I don't know if you've seen Forrest Gump, but that was pretty bad. Well, despite this definite follicle disadvantage, he apparently turns in a pretty reasonable acting performance. It's just a shame about the script. But I want to actually cast your mind back today to another Tom Hanks vehicle with a movie called Castaway. Anyone actually seen that on DVD? A few of you. Okay, let me just fill you in with some of the salient plot uh, features. Castaway is a story about an executive of a courier company played by Tom Hanks who survives a plane crash at sea only to find himself washed up on a deserted island just him and a whole bunch of luggage. And the movie is about his experience on this island. And there's three things about the movie that that brings out about his situation that are worth thinking about today. First is this, his predicament on the island seems hopeless. There isn't much prospect of anything happening to change his situation. Secondly, it's a tragic and very sad situation. When we see the hopelessness of his predicament, and the relationships that he's left behind, because that's the movie gives us a window into that, we realise just how sad, how tragic his situation is. But thirdly, we also see his fear. I mean, sitting in the comfort of a cinema, looking at his hopelessness, it might make us sad, but we're not the ones on the island. For him on the island, he's afraid. It's a fearful situation. He's hopeless, in a hopeless situation, sad and afraid. Now the chances are that you or I are unlikely to end up as castaways on Desert Island, though here's a freebie for you, just a handy hint from that movie. If you find yourself stuck on a deserted island, I hope you've got a volleyball with you, because then apparently you can draw a face on it and it'll keep you company, according to the movie. But that's just a freebie for you today, you can store that away, hope it comes in useful. But we're unlikely really to face the sort of hopelessness, the sort of sadness, the sort of fear that he experienced in that movie. But the reason I bring it up today is that there's another sort of situation in which hopelessness, sadness and fear come up again, but this time it's a situation that all of us face. Everyone here in this room faces the situation I have in mind today. And actually it's worse than Tom Hanks' situation in Castaway because in addition to hopelessness, sadness and fear, we are also powerless. In Tom Hanks' situation he could do something but we can do nothing. 
in our situation. What's this situation that I'm talking about? Well, I'm talking about death. Now, if you needed any convincing of just how difficult a situation death is, you can get a sense of its terrifying grip on us when you listen to some of the things that people have said about death through the ages. Let me share a few with you. There's a Persian proverb that goes like this. It says, Death is a camel that lies down at every door. That is, imagine having a camel at your door. You can't ignore a camel if it's lying at your door. You can't sidestep around a camel when it's lying at your door. It forces you to address the issue. Wow, a camel at my door. (laughs) But also, death is inevitable. It's the camel that lies down at every door, including yours, mine, or again, on the same theme, if the imagery of a camel at the door is just a bit much for you, uh, George Bernard Shaw, a famous quotation from him, he said, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. But that inevitability of death is not something we want to face in general. Uh, there's a Jewish proverb that says, every man knows he will die, but no one wants to believe it. That's the fear of death, see, that we refuse to acknowledge its hold on us, even to ourselves. And so often what breaks through that denial, it's often when death touches someone we love. That's when death first confronts us. Here's another quotation. I think this lady really put her finger right on the pulse. She said, We understand death for the first time when he puts his hand upon one whom we love. When someone we love dies, we understand the sadness of death. And that's often when we grasp our own powerlessness in the face of death. I couldn't do anything to stop it. I can't do anything to stop it happening to this person whom I love. I can't even do do anything to stop it touching me. And when that, that hopelessness and powerlessness really comes with force to us, that's often when we fear it. We fear the death of those we love. We fear our own death. Oh, we might try to face death with a superficial bravado, maybe even some sort of joke. So Woody Allen said, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's Woody Allen, that's meant to be funny. But it is just a little bit lame, isn't it? You can actually hear, even within the joke, just, yeah, there is a reality that death is a fearful thing. Samuel Johnson was once asked, is not the fear of death natural to man? And his reply was, so much so, sir, yes it sure is, so much so, that the whole of life is but keeping away the very thought of it. We spend our whole of life trying to just keep away the very thought of the fear of death. And the Bible actually agrees. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 the Bible talks about humanity as being held in slavery by the fear of death. So what can we say in the face of death? Well, we're going to look at an incident today recorded for us in the Bible where Jesus is confronted by death or more realistically, where death is confronted with Jesus. And it's the death of someone Jesus loved. 
But Jesus confronts this death in an utterly unique and completely radical way. And my hope this morning, or this afternoon, is by understanding this true account of Jesus' confrontation with death, that we here today might find some God-given answers to our powerlessness, our hopelessness, our sadness, and yes, even our fear of death. So if you've got your Bible there, it'd be great if you can open up to John chapter 11. We're reading from John's account of Jesus' life, ministry, death and resurrection and we're starting in chapter 11 today. And there's an outline there, a few headings, and I'm under the first heading there which says Jesus confronts death. Let me read just the first three verses of John chapter 11. We read there, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So we learn here that Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus. He's described as the one whom Jesus loved. And Lazarus has taken sick. Presumably it's a serious illness. It's not just a bit of a sniffle. That's why they've called Jesus. His sisters Martha and Mary are worried about him. But they knew Jesus could heal him. And in his account of Jesus' life that we've been reading here, John has already described for us some of the amazing healings that Jesus has done. In particular, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus heals an official son who was at the very point of death. There was a person at the very point of death and Jesus healed them. Or then a bit later in chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been seriously paralysed for 38 years. Or in chapter 9, we saw last week, he healed a man who had been born blind who restores his sight to him. So when things are looking bad for their brother Lazarus, the sisters get word to Jesus. Jesus, the one whom you love, he's sick. But then Jesus doesn't do what they or us really expect. Have a look at verses 4 to 7 there. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Jesus deliberately does not go to his friend Lazarus. He stays where he is for another two days and then says, okay, let's go now. Now if you read a bit later, down in verses 11 to 15, the reason Jesus waited was because he was waiting for Lazarus to die. He waited for Lazarus to die before going to him. Now that seems a very callous, a very unloving thing to do, surely. Why deliberately wait until your friend has died before going to see him? Now the story makes it clear it's not because Jesus didn't care. Verse 5, we were told explicitly that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And the reason we're told that right there is so that we don't start thinking Jesus was unloving. Now he loved the whole family. But we're also told there in verse 4 that Jesus knows Lazarus's sickness won't end in death. That's not just a wishful optimism on Jesus' part. Oh well, I hope it all turns out well for you. I'm sure you'll get better. He knows 
Lazarus is going to die. Indeed, he waits for Lazarus to die, but he has a further instalment beyond Lazarus' death in his own mind already. He has a plan. So Jesus waits around for Lazarus to die to make a point. That's what he said there in verse 4. This sickness is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now if you've been with us as we've looked through John's account of Jesus' life, ministry, death and resurrection, you might remember that the concept of God's glory is a really important one for John's Gospel. And when we come back to the second half of John's Gospel in second semester this year, we're going to talk more about God's glory. But it does help to recognise here that when John the writer talks about God's glory, he's usually talking about God's self-revelation, God's self-disclosure. What God reveals is his glory. And you can trace that idea back to important Old Testament passages like Exodus 33 and 34 where God reveals his glory to Moses. So what Jesus is saying here is that the sickness will reveal God's glory. It will be part of God's gracious self-revelation. And in particular it's so that the Son of God, that is Jesus himself, might be glorified. He might be revealed in all his splendour through it. So just like the other signs that we've seen in John's account of Jesus' ministry, what will transpire here with Lazarus ultimately we point to Jesus' identity. It will reveal who he is. It will reveal his glory, his true self, the glory as of God's one-of-a-kind son who came from the Father. But if the point here in part is the revealing of Jesus' identity as the Son of God, that's only really half the coin. The flip side of that coin is that once Jesus' identity is revealed, it always throws the question back to you and me, to those reading, as to how we're going to respond to this Jesus whose identity has been revealed. And we've seen time and time again right through John's Gospel, Jesus does these works, these signs that have been given him to do by the Heavenly Father, and they do it, he does them to point to his own identity so that you and I, who witness the signs recorded for us, might believe in Jesus and be saved. And Jesus mentions that explicitly in verses 14 to 15. He has to tell his disciples, verse 11, hey, we're going to Judea to wake up Lazarus. Lazarus has fallen asleep, meaning that he died. His disciples don't pick up the metaphor and they just say, oh, come on, if he's asleep, surely someone will wake him up. It's okay, he's got other friends. You don't need to go there to do it. And then Jesus has to tell them explicitly, verse 14, Lazarus is dead for your sake. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. In pointing to his identity as Son of God, what Jesus intends to do here will present itself as another opportunity for his disciples and us to put their faith, their belief in him. And you can see the same point made a bit later on when Jesus prays in front of the tomb in verse 42. So the scene here is now set for Jesus' confrontation with death. Let's look then at what happens, verse 17 to 19. When Jesus arrived, John writes, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. So when Jesus arrives, Lazarus is four days dead. Now with that, their inclusive sort of numbering system, that's like me walking into this lecture theatre on Monday of this week, just gone, 
and say I die here at the front of the lecture theatre. There I am lying on the ground. You walk in today, Thursday, and see my body there. Dead four days. Now, people who studied medicine tell us that by the time a body's been dead for four days, it's already started to decompose. Right? This is not an opportunity for an ER moment, you know, whack the clappers on and boom, them back to life. No, this body is gone. This guy was truly dead, four days in the tomb. And Jesus arrives, there's already a large crowd, they're weeping and wailing, so we know there's lots of witnesses to what happens here. They know Lazarus was dead and they're going to see what Jesus will do. Before Jesus even gets to the town where Lazarus is buried, he's met by Lazarus' two sisters. And John records they each talk to Jesus separately, but they both say the same thing, interestingly. First Martha, then Mary. They both say, if you'd been here, Jesus, Lazarus wouldn't have died. I mean, that's why they called him in the first place, wasn't it? They had confidence that Jesus could prevent Lazarus' death, just like he healed that official son who'd been at the point of death. And not just them, the crowd too had hoped for some sort of preventative healing. Verse 37, they say, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? The answer was, of course Jesus could, if only he got there. And then John records for us Jesus' reaction to this scene. Big, big crowds all weeping and wailing. Verse 33, 35. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. Notice it says there, when Jesus saw the weeping, he was, quote, greatly disturbed. A better translation, actually, the word John uses, would be outraged. It literally means to snort like horses do in anger. Jesus, seeing the weeping and the wailing the morning, he's angry, outraged, indignant, incensed. Yet you also see there in verse 35, his sadness and grief. He weeps. Now the crowd misunderstand why Jesus weeps. They think it's just because Lazarus has died. But see, we already know Jesus has made up his mind about what he's going to do. He knows that this won't end ultimately in death. So it's surely not tears for Lazarus' passing that causes him to weep. Why is he weeping? What's making him so sad? What's making him so outraged and angry? Well, I take it he's worked up about the grip that death has on this world, on our existence. And I think underneath that also he's worked up about the sin, the moral and spiritual blindness that plunges all of us into death's grasp. It gets him outraged and indignant and sad because at a fundamental level, friends, this is not how life should be. This is not how our Lord God intended things to be. That we be living under the slavery of the fear of death. I don't know if you've walked through the main quad recently. There's an exhibition on in the Nicholson Museum there in the quad and it's called Unearthed Tales and the subtitle is A Fascination with Death. So I was walking past it, reflecting on it the last week or so, I thought, 
what an absolutely beautiful academic, intellectual, distanced approach to death. A fascination with death. How impersonal can you get? I mean, when they turned up to Lazarus' tomb, did they stand there and go, wow, what a fascinating situation. Let's analyse this and write a PhD on it. (laughs) No, when you're confronted with death, it's not intellectual inquiry that is the dominant reaction, surely. To be truly confronted with death should bring outrage. It should bring tears. I think literally only in the cloistered corridors of the university could you present such a non-relational view of death. Well, Jesus finally arrives at the tomb, the place where Lazarus is buried, verse 38. And once more we read, he's outraged, he's indignant. And so what does he do? He commands the stone that lies in front of the entrance to the tomb to be rolled away, verse 39. And Martha objects, saying, look, there's going to be an awful smell. He's been dead for four days. We know what happens to bodies. In fact, in the King James Version, it puts it, Martha says, Lord, by now he stinketh. (laughs) They're under no illusion of what happens if you're four days dead. But with Jesus' encouragement there in verse 40, they do roll away the stone. Jesus then prays. And John records what happens next. One, surely of the most extraordinary events of all time. Look at verses 43 and 44. When Jesus said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's just worth stopping and pausing and and reflecting on the radicalness of this. This is such a complete overturning of anything that we would consider to be natural or normal. If I had died here on Monday and you've left my body here till today, Thursday, and you walk in and you try with a word to command me to live, you're just going to look silly. It doesn't matter how many crazy dances you do around my corpse in your own power you are going to have zero hope of bringing life back to me. But that's what Jesus did. A dead corpse he brought back to life with a word. Brings back to mind what Jesus had said back in chapter 5 verses 25 and 26. As I read this out, hear the resonances with what he does with Lazarus. Jesus said back in chapter 5, Very truly I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And now, at least for one man, Jesus' friend Lazarus, it has come true. He's heard the voice of the Son of God and though he be dead, he lives. So what do we make of all this? Death just seems so permanent to us, so final. What does this account tell us? Has this just exposed some sort of chink in death's impenetrable armour? Is this some sort of exception that might actually show that the rule of death isn't a rule at all? Or more pertinently, is there something here 
in what happened all those years ago that can address our powerlessness, our hopelessness, our sadness and fear in the face of death? Now to answer those questions we need to look more carefully at the conversation that Jesus has with Martha before he gets to the tomb, before he raises Lazarus. This conversation between Jesus and Martha holds the key to what's going on when Jesus raises Lazarus back to life. So I'm at the heading, the end of death, through the death of Jesus. You can see Martha's conversation with Jesus. It's there in verses 21 to 24. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha's a Jew and many Jews expected that at the end of time, the last day, there would be a general resurrection from the dead. God would raise back to life all those who'd lived his way with him as their God, but that that would happen at the end of time. So Martha says, yes, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now at this point it's worth taking a moment to fill out why did Martha believe this? What gave her this hope in the light of uh, death and sin? So we have to turn to the picture with which God provides us in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, to understand this connection between sin and death and hope because that's what lies behind Martha's comment and that's what informs Jesus' reactions here in what he says and what he does. So let's just think there about the background. Sin and death, first of all, just to sort of paint in brief the picture, God's scriptures teach very clearly that death is a direct consequence of sin, our fallen spiritual state. Death is universal because sin is endemic. Sin is universal to everybody. We are all predisposed, every one of us, like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, to reject God's authority over our lives, to forsake him, to turn to our own ways. And God's just response to that is death. Well, the key point here is that ultimately, just think about it for a moment, to deal with the problem of death, if death comes because of sin, God's going to have to do something about sin as well, isn't he? To truly overturn death, he's going to have to do something to overturn the problem of sin. The situation, as Paul puts it in Romans 5, is that since sin entered the world and all sinned, therefore death came to all. Or as he puts it, death reigned, ruled from Adam onwards. So that's the connection between sin and death. If God is going to overturn death, he's got to do something about sin. But what about hope? Where does Martha's hope come from? Well, while death reigned from Adam onwards, this was not going to be God's ultimate goal. Throughout the Old Testament, there are glimpses, just little glimmers, of an overturning of death. So if you've got an Old Testament there with you today, it'd be great if you can turn to Isaiah 25. It's just a prophecy here, a great prophecy, looking forward to what the Lord God one day will do. And it's passages like this that are the foundation for the hope that Martha had. Isaiah 25, 6-9 is the wonderful, beautiful passage. Isaiah 25, 6-9 let me read it out to you. On this mountain, meaning Mount Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? 
And look how then it's filled out. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord God has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That is through his covenant promises to Israel, that's the significance of on this mountain, Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem, through his covenant promises to Israel, the Lord God is going to destroy this shroud, this death sheet that enfolds all people. He's going to swallow up death forever. Another place where the resurrection from the dead is clearly mentioned, probably the most clear in all of the Old Testament, is one we mentioned last week. It came up when we were looking at John 10. The passage I'm talking about is Daniel chapter 12 verse 2. And the picture there is of the last day when, quote, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So that gives you some idea of the expectation of Martha and other Jews of her day. At the last day there will be this general resurrection from the grave and it forms part of a wider hope that the Lord God will fulfil all of his covenant promises to his people and bring this blessing to all the nations as he establishes his kingdom. Well, so much for Martha's expectation. Back then to what Jesus has to say because Jesus' response to Martha's good sort of hope for this resurrection of the last day, Jesus says something very radical to Martha. And this really is the heart of the passage and the key to what he's doing in Lazarus. Look at verses 25 and 26 back in John 11. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That is Jesus saying, you're waiting for the resurrection of the last day? Well, the resurrection is here now. It's here now in me. There's no more waiting. You are expecting it at the end of time. Well, God is what you are expecting at the end of time, God is doing right now in the middle of time, right here in me. And all those who believe in me will live even though they die. And then he goes to the tomb and he raises Lazarus with a word. It's Jesus' demonstration that he can do what he's promising. In raising Lazarus, Jesus provides a vindication of his identity as the one sent from the Father who can give life, but also it points to the very sort of life that Jesus will bring. It's life out of the grave. It's freedom from this slavery to death. Now if someone said to you, what is this Gospel of John, this account of Jesus' life all about, this particular book? I reckon you can sum it up in one word life the theme of life is the central message of John's gospel it's mentioned 47 times in just these chapters starting in verse 4 of chapter 1 where we heard the word in Christ the word who was with God and what God in him was life and that life was the light of all people and you go all the way through the other end of John's gospel chapter 20 verse 31 this whole, this whole book has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John is writing about, this offer of life 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Lazarus, see, Lazarus was given life, but he was actually just raised back to his old life. For him, it sort of in a way was an ER moment. He was just resuscitated. But when we read through the rest of John's account of Jesus' life, we realise the life that Jesus promises here is, is more than just a resuscitation. He's actually promising eternal life. Not just a few more years until death comes knocking again, as it did for Lazarus. Eternal life means death never comes knocking again. You're raised up physically in a resurrection from the grave at the last day and the great reality of this eternal life started with Jesus himself in his own resurrection in John 20. Lazarus, if you like, was just a sketch. I don't know what you're like at drawing, but you know if I try to, to make a copy of a masterpiece and I did it in black and white pencil, it's going to look pretty weak. Well, in some ways, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is like my weak pencil sketch. I mean, it's a pretty impressive pencil sketch, really. Turn up to a tomb and four days dead and you call him out. That's pretty impressive. It's nothing compared to the reality of the resurrection that came in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus was raised, he was raised to immortality. Death was no longer going to come knocking. He was raised to imperishability. But what's more, this eternal life that Jesus promises is even more than just a future bodily resurrection to immortality. Eternal life, we learn in John's Gospel, starts today. It actually starts the moment you put your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. John chapter 17 verse 3 says, This is the essence of eternal life, knowing God, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The essence of eternal life is actually being in that knowing relationship with God. And friend, that starts today. Even if you have to wait for your resurrection body at the end of time, that eternal life starts now. Now how can Jesus offer this sort of life? Well the answer is that he secures this offer of life ironically by giving up his own life. He secures life for you and me through death. We saw that briefly last week in John 10. Do you remember that Jesus described himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep? That is, the shepherd gives up his own life so that the sheep can live. Well, the same reality is developed here in chapter 11 in the last part. You'll meet there Caiaphas, who's the Jewish high priest that year, and unknowingly, in frustration... Caiaphas prophesies about the way that Jesus secures life for all people. If you've got John 11 there, verses 50 to 52, in frustration, Caiaphas says, you, talking to the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, you do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. And John comments, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. That is, Jesus lays down his life and then takes it up again in resurrection so that we may share in eternal life. All nations, not just the Jewish people. And that was there also in John 10, where Jesus said, I have other sheep who are not of this pen, but I'm going to call them as well so there might be one shepherd and one flock. All nations will have this shroud of death removed 
when the good shepherd lays down his life and takes it up again for the sake of the sheep. Well, where does all this leave us? Well, friends, it leaves us with the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Verse 26, Jesus said to Martha, after saying that he's the resurrection and life, he says, do you believe this? You know, that's a really important question because what Jesus says here is that it's those who believe in him who will live even though they die. The crucial factor that will determine anyone's future beyond the grave, whether they're going to enjoy this eternal life that begins now in knowing God, the crucial factor, the only determining factor, is whether or not they believe in him. Now, believing in Jesus means believing that he is who he says he is, that he is the one sent from God to save you, to be the Christ, to be your king. Martha is the great example there in her response. When Jesus says, do you believe? Verse 27, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. You know, believing is more than just believing in your head. To truly believe means listening and it means doing. I mean, do you believe that seatbelts are a good idea? You don't even need to answer the question. I can just look to see the way you get into a car and what you do. If you really believe seatbelts are a good idea, you're going to wear them. If you said to me, oh, seatbelts are great. They should be compulsory in every country. Seatbelts are a great idea. But you never put on a seatbelt. I said, do you really believe it's a good idea? If you really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who has come to save, the one who's going to lay down his life that you might live, the one who calls you to follow him and to stay with him, if you really believe that, that's got to show in your life, surely. It can't just be an intellectual assent, because mere intellectual assent is just that, it's mere it's not the real deal. It's whole of life. Well, friends, I don't know if you think death really is tragic. If you don't think death is tragic, may I say just gently and respectfully, you just haven't lived very long yet. I remember going to the funeral of a friend, James. He was married in his 40s three kids, two kids still at school. He was on a work trip going up north, driving with his business partner up the highway when a car crossed over the road and straight into them. He died. Just in his 40s, three kids, two still at school. And sitting there in the funeral service with his body in a box, death's real. Death is tragic. Seeing his family in the front row morning. Death is tragic. I remember taking the funeral of a 21 year old guy Steve. He'd gone over to the US just to be a counsellor on one of those summer camps. Uh, He's playing soccer with a bunch of the kids one afternoon and he fell down dead with a heart attack on the field. He was fit as a fiddle age 21. I remember going to a funeral for the daughter of a friend of mine, Rachel. She was three months old. Three months old. Dead. If you don't think death is tragic, 
probably just haven't lived very long yet. But let me tell you what the key question is. I reckon the key question is, I want to know, is James, 40-year-old, alive now, today? Is Steve, 21-year-old, is he alive now, today? Is Rachel alive today? Do they live even though they died? See, I don't want to be satisfied and I won't be satisfied with just pious, wishful thinking. Oh, well, I'm sure they're in a better place. We gave them a great send-off. I'm sure they're just looking down on us, laughing away. I don't want wishful thinking. I want to know the truth. Do they live? Though they die? Well, the key question to answer that question is did they believe in Jesus? Or in young Rachel's case, I think, was she part of the family of faith, that family of those who've answered yes to Jesus' question, do you believe? Because it's only Jesus who gives this life that overwhelms death, that calls you out of the grave, that gives you this eternal life. And the good news is that James, 40-year-old, yes, he did believe in Jesus. So now he lives with his Lord. And Steve too, yes, he had a real trust in the Lord Jesus. So Jesus says he's already crossed over from death to life. And little Rachel too, her parents are followers of the Lord Jesus. So she too is part of that family of faith and she too now lives even though she died. And yes, she'll be raised up physically with an imperishable, immortal body never to have death come knocking at her door again. So friends, yes, there is hope, see, in our hopelessness. There's a reason for joy even in our sadness. There's security for our fears. There's a mighty power for our powerlessness and it's all located in this man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the resurrection and the life, the risen one. He is hope, joy, security and power for all of us who are under the shroud of the fear of death. It has us wrapped up and only Jesus can call us up out of it. So I want to say today, if you put your faith in Jesus, then here is wonderful, great comfort for you. Take comfort and heart from this promise of eternal life. But if you've not yet reached this point of putting your faith in the Lord Jesus, then I need to say this to you as gently and as respectfully and lovingly as I may. One question. Do you want to live Do you want to live? Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy to us in sending the Lord Jesus, not only so that we might know the truth about you, but that you might break death's stranglehold on us in him, that we might have life and have it abundantly. We give you great thanks and praise. Now that you might help us to put our faith, our trust, this day and every day in him. We ask it for his sake. Amen.